So when you know who you are, you'll know what to do. When you don't know who you are, you won't know what to do. It could just be that you'll know what to do. But if you don't really know who you are and you're not living in who you were intended to be, you're not going to be inclined to do what you think you know you're supposed to be doing. Why would you? Know who you are. This is at the heart of our series of messages right now that when you know who you are, you will know what to do. And we've been talking all through this series about um, who we are in Christ. And I've been suggesting through this series, in my experience, and just my experience, the two things that I find believers, and myself included, struggle with the most. Number two is forgiveness. How do I process forgiveness with either God or with that other person that I've had to deal with? And then secondly, uh, or first actually, is the one we're talking about today, who I am in Christ who I am in Christ. And we're looking for all kinds of different sources to see our self-worth and, and what we're to be doing in life. And we've forgotten who we are in Christ. We've looked in this series and we've said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that we are called, it says in 2 Corinthians 5, called and appointed to be ambassadors for Christ, to be his representative, to be the one that shares his message and to only represent from his word, what he would have us represent. We looked in the second week at the fact that scripture tells us that we are God's masterpiece. A Latin phrase for that is we are his magnum opus. The artist looks and this is his beautiful, greatest creation. And this is how God views us in light of who we are in Christ. Last week, Pastor Aaron talked to about us about the fact that that scripture really tells us that we are to be disciples in light of who we are in Christ. We are to be disciples who make disciples. And none of these things that we've talked about in the last three weeks or we're going to talk about today, none of these things are based in who we are in and of ourselves. None of these things are based on what other people say about us or think about us or do to us. All of these things are based in who we are in Christ. We've celebrated the fact, something I will say often because I hear so many people confused about this, that we are perfectly loved by God. There is nothing we can do or not do that will allow God or cause God to love us any more or any less. In fact, there's nothing within us that would invite us to love him, for him to love us rather, sorry. He loves us perfectly because he's made that choice. Equally true, true and equally important is that he is perfectly holy. And he is able to harmonize these two things perfectly together. And so when he looks at us, not only does he call for, but he demands transformation. And he says very clearly in scripture that this is a voluntary thing, this side of our physical death. Subsequent to that and on judgment day, those that have deliberately and repeatedly rebuked the call of Christ on their life will bow the knee and will be compelled to. And they will be overwhelmed by the message they have rejected. And so this is the heart of what scripture is talking about, that when we are in Christ, we are loved by God. We are chosen. His chosen child is one of the images. We are holy. We are called saints. And when we know who we are, we will know 
like to do. One of the things we've been doing in this series is inviting you to practice a healthy spiritual discipline. And there's a number of great spiritual disciplines, and one of them is the memorization of Scripture. And so we've been handing out these little cards each week which have a verse or two on it that we're inviting you to memorize. And there's just places in Scripture. It says, your word have I hid in my heart that, I've not, that I will not sin against you. And so we're going to do that today. And the verse that's going up on the screen there is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. And this is the theme verse for all of these messages. And I'm going to turn around and close my eyes. I think I've got this one pretty well memorized. If you don't need to look at the screen, don't. If you have to look, that's okay. But we're going to read it together, starting with the reference. Let's recite this together. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Beautiful scripture, talking about who we are in Christ. Who we are in Christ. Today, we're going to shift to this idea that as committed followers of Christ, we are called to be change agents. We are called to be divine influencers in this world. And the scripture that we heard read to us earlier from Matthew chapter 5 verses 13 to 16 says we are called to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And the verses that we're going to memorize this week, and again they'll be handed out to you as you go, let's put that up on the screen. Matthew chapter 5 verses 13 and 14. Let's read these together. Matthew 5, 13 and 14. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world, a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. You know, in our culture, we have, uh, we have a bit of a love-hate relationship with salt, don't we? You know, who... Uh, who, when they're having a tomato, doesn't want to have a little pinch of salt on it? It just punches up the flavor. And salt helps with a lot of things. But the problem is, is if you eat too much of this stuff, the next time you go to the doctor, he sits you, he or she sits you down, and they, you know, your blood pressure's up, Mr. Dixon, you better do something about that. Less coffee and less salt. So we have this less, we have this uh, love-hate relationship in our culture with salt. In the days of Jesus, salt was very, viewed very differently than we see it here in North America. In, in, the, in the culture of that day, salt was the number two commodity in the world. Number one was the sun. Because they looked and they went, wow, if there's no sun, we got no crops, and we all starve to death. But number two was salt. In Rome, people would often, when they were, especially when they were day laborers, they would often be paid by getting a salt allotment at the end of the day. That's how they were paid. And this is where our phrase, he's not worth his salt, comes from. Because they would look at the man and woman and they would say, they don't know what they're doing, they're not working very well, or they're not working hard enough. They are not worth their salt allotment at the end of the day. Now what Jesus is not saying in this passage is how we would commonly understand this phrasing. Because we look at people and we'll say, well, you know, that guy, that woman, they are the salt of the earth. 
And what we understand that to mean is you're a really good old boy. You know, you're kind of a good old boy. You're a good egg or whatever. Jesus is not saying that here. What Jesus is saying is he's saying, actually, you are a really bad old boy who has been completely changed by a really good old God. And this is at the heart of the biblical message. Everything points to this. This is why we talk about it so often. Because of Christ dying in our place on the cross, he came to pay, even though he didn't deserve it or didn't earn it, he came to pay the penalty for our sin. For those that voluntarily receive it, and it's a very individualized choice, it's a personal choice, no one can make it for you. You have to choose it or reject it yourself. For those that receive it, there is full and complete forgiveness from God. There is salvation. There is, when you surrender your life, which is, uh, is a, a equally important with the idea of forgiveness, you're given purposeful direction in life. And then when we know who we are in Christ, when we know who we are, we become a divine change agent a Christ-empowered influencer into the world. And so Jesus gives these images of what we are supposed to be like in the culture. And the first one is that of the salt of the earth. So what does, what does salt do? What are the things that salt does? Well, there's a number of things, and they, and they, they pair with what we are called, and so they understood this, it, it paired with who we are to be. And so, first of all, they would see it as a, as a preserving agent. And Jesus is saying, listen, if you're a biblical believer, we are called to be a divine preserver, pointing people to Jesus, helping them to find eternal life. I want you to think back in your life to the person or persons that loved you that prayed for you, that pointed you to Jesus. See, they got that call from Christ. And aren't you glad that they loved you and prayed for you and pointed you to Christ? Jesus has the exact same call on anyone here today who's part of the family of God. Salt, of course, has a purifying factor to it as well. And Jesus is saying, listen, um, back then, it, this was true as well, that we live in a generally unpure world. And Jesus says, as followers of Christ, when we are in Christ, we are to be agents of purification in the culture, representing a radically different way to live in an impure world. Then we know, of course, if you, if you eat salt, you know that it creates thirst. And, it, and it, it draws thirsty people. If you eat chips, if you eat peanuts, if you eat pretzels, you know the famous line, these pretzels are making me thirsty. The salt on these things makes you thirsty. And when Jesus has changed you, people will notice. They are watching you. They may not be aware of this, but if they know that you're a biblical believer, if they sense something different in you, they are watching you like a hawk. They are observing how you do life, especially in the bumpy moments of life. They're watching you closely. And many of them are just, they would love to sit you down. And some of them will, but probably most of them won't. And they would love to sit you down and say, what is it about you? What do you have? 
Why are you so different? Why are you full of, they might not use this word, but why are you full of joy? I've seen in you, there's just something different in you, especially when you're going through the tough stuff in life. And you know, uh, I have just been personally blessed to have many people in my life who have had influence in my life who've had that encounter with Christ and, they, and they're just different people because of it. And I was thinking about this and I thought, who is just a shining example of this? And, it, and one of the people in my life is someone, I've known her for 21 years. I've worked with her for 21 years and her name is Dorita. And she works part-time at this church. She works full-time as an educational assistant in one of our local churches, uh, schools, sorry. And uh, I've seen her go through the ups and the downs of life. Once in a while, she'll talk to me about them a bit. I've seen her when her mom was getting increasingly sick and her mom died. I've seen when her dad was sick. I've seen the joys of a great marriage that she has with Corey. And this is not some fluke or some accident. They work hard at their marriage. I've seen them do it. I've heard them talk about it. I've seen them raise a great daughter, Allie. Um, Allie was three weeks old when we came to this church. So I always know, I can always look at her and say, okay, this is how long I've been hanging my hat here in Lethbridge for quite a while, 21 years. When Dorita enters an environment, I've seen her consistently do this. She raises the joy quotient. She cares about people. She blesses people. She's genuinely interested in people. I've seen her more times than I can count quietly serve when nobody else is looking. And I absolutely, I don't bet. I'm not a betting person. But if I was a betting person, I would bet my house that that the pre-Christians that hang with Dorita they're just dying to ask her, what is different about you? Is she perfect? Not perfect. But Jesus has changed her life. And the pre-Christians, I absolutely guarantee it, they would die to ask, why are you different? And I guarantee you, many of them want what she has. See, when Jesus changes us, and we are the salt of the earth, that creates force. Salt also melts. It's a little hard on the cement. You know, if we get some more of the white stuff and some ice, which I hope doesn't come for a while, but if we do, if you throw a little salt, it's a little hard on the cement, but it will melt it and clean it up, won't it? Biblical believers living in the power of God, they can melt the hardest situations and the, the hardest hearts. It, of course, heals if you've got a sore throat. You take some sort of uh, warmish water and put some salt, lots of salt in there and gargle and it doesn't taste very good but it helps cleanse and heal that sore throat. When a biblical believer is filled with the spirit of God, God uses you to be a healing agent. Then Jesus says, uh, another image, he says, you're to be the light of the world. And back then, of course, they didn't have electricity or any of the things we are blessed with. But in a typical home in the Middle East, a typical home would have one window to the outside, one hole in the wall. And uh, archaeological digs have discovered that you can tell the different eras, especially in the Middle East, 
based on the, the shape of the lamp that they would use. And this little lamp here is a recreation of the uh, kind of lamp that Jesus would have used. This is dated, this shape, to the time in history when he walked the face of the earth. And I bought it um, in the city, the little town of Nazareth, where Jesus hung his hat for quite a while. And when you look at this, of course, they didn't have matches or big lighters or anything like that. So it was a deal to light something like this. You didn't just quickly do this. It took some effort and some work to do that. And so one of the things they would often do, if say they were going to go out of the house and they were concerned that the wind might come up or something like that, they didn't want, and they were going to come home, say they were going to come home late at night, and they didn't want to be stumbling around in the dark because the wind had blown out the lamp, they would take a bowl like this and they would put it over the light. And so this, is, this imagery in these verses are very familiar to Jesus. Now, beyond that, the Pharisees, who were the religious leaders of that day, I've talked to you about them before, they had this whole big religious system. They had over 600 rules that they said, if you follow enough of these rules religiously enough, you might make yourself acceptable to God. And of course, this is the thing that sets biblical Christianity apart from all the religions of the world. It's not about do's and don'ts in biblical Christianity. It's about what Christ has done. So what they had determined, the Pharisees, they said, you're, it says you're not to work on the Sabbath. So they delineated all the things you couldn't and could do on the Sabbath. One of the things they said you could not do was you could not do the work that it took to light your lamp. But they said you could do this amount of work. Put your bowl over your lamp so that it doesn't blow out during the night when you got to get up and go to the bathroom or something like that. And so this imagery is very clearly registered in the minds of the people. And Jesus says to them, listen, whatever you do as a biblical believer, do not put a bowl over the light that I'm shining through your life. Whatever you do. I have changed you. And I don't want you to ever, ever cover up that light. He says in verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. It's never about a focus on yourself or on me. It's all about exalting Jesus, exalting God the Father. The world, the world needs, it needs salt and it needs light because the world is dark. Work this through in, my mind, in your mind with me. This is very important. Don't run from the darkness. Don't be in the darkness. Instead, Jesus is saying, shine into the darkness. Very important distinction. Don't run away from it. Don't be in it. Shine into it and penetrate it. God has called every biblical believer to be an agent of change. I want you to turn with me over to the book of Acts. It's the fifth book in the New Testament, Acts chapter 16. And we're just going to quickly look at a story that illustrates what I've been talking about. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. And it's the story of the early church, Acts chapter 16. And if you were reading in there, starting, we're not going to read it all, but starting in verse 16, we see the story uh, of Paul and Silas. And Paul and Silas in verse 16 are out telling 
and speaking about in the public areas about Jesus. And numbers of people are giving their life to Christ and their life is being completely transformed. You can read the story. One of them is a young woman who is a slave. And uh, it's complicated, but she had a, had a skill set that because of who she was in Christ, this wasn't going to be available to her anymore. And her master was super angry, steaming mad, because this was going to cost him money, this good thing God had done in her life. So he gets the people all whipped up. He gets the religious leaders all whipped up. And they grab up Paul and Silas. And they say, you stop talking about this Jesus. And they go, not a chance. You know, it's interesting. I just heard the government is trying to say, you cannot, um, here in the province, you cannot say that God's authority is higher than human authority. The biblical answer to that is, God's authority is higher than the authority of any man or woman. Even if it costs you. Look at what it costs them. They're grabbed up in the public square. They're beaten. They're tossed into prison. Let me just flesh that out for you a little bit. You're taken in public, in the public square. You're stripped, basically naked. You're beaten, more than likely flogged 39 times with a whip that has strips of leather and sewn into the strips of leather are little pieces of glass, little pieces of steel, and little rocks. They slash you 39 times, so much so that your back is ripped completely open to the depths where your internal organs will be showing through at times. You're put into a dungeon and put in stocks, which means you're sitting on your butt and they, they stretch your legs out like a wishbone and chain you that way, so much so that your legs instantly begin to cramp up and they leave you indefinitely in that position so you're in a pain position for hour after hour after hour. It says in verse 25, about midnight. See, I'm assuming that they're in so much physical pain, they cannot sleep. You tell us we can't talk about Christ, we will talk about Christ, even if it costs us, which it did. About midnight, writhing in pain, it says, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. See, they're simply being who they are. Because when you know who you are, you will know what to do. It's kind of like the relationship between the sun and the moon. You know, when, when you go out at night and there's a full moon, you go, oh, that moon is so beautiful. It ref you know, it's so bright and... Actually, we all know the moon is dark, right? And all that's happening is the sun is reflecting off the moon. And this is what the relationship is supposed to be like. I'm supposed to be a reflection of Christ. Him reflecting off me. And all Jesus is saying is, would you, hey Scott, would you let me reflect off you? It's like the little song we would sing as kids. This little light of mine, I'm going to light it shine. Hide it under a bushel. No. I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine. Let it shine. Paul says in Romans, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. See, he puts his money where his mouth is, right? I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of anyone who believes Christ. 
So let me just ask you like a real, real personal question here. You know, have you put the bowl over the lump? What do I mean by that? You know, you're thinking to yourself, well, I know Jesus and I'm going to heaven and the people that are most important to me, I think they are too. And so, you know, it's not that you're, it's not that you don't like other people, but eh, maybe, hopefully they'll just figure it out on their own. You know, I'm good to go, so that's all that really matters. Of course, you have to ask yourself the question, if that's your attitude, are you good to go? But Jesus is saying, have you, have you positioned your life in such a way that you've got a bowl over your lump? And he's saying, whatever you do, don't put a bowl over that lump. Let your light shine. Let Christ be reflected in your life. And so their life is shining, and it says in verses 26 and 27, and I've lost my place just one second. Acts chapter 16, it says, Suddenly there was a violent earthquake that shook the foundations of the prison. And all at once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. So the jailer wakes up and in that culture... Uh, when your job was to guard someone, if you let them go, for whatever reason, you were executed in the public square, which was a strong motivation to not go asleep on the job. And this guy goes, oh no, they've all run, grabs his sword, and he's about to kill himself. And Paul shouts in verse 28, and he says, don't harm yourself, we're all still here. Now, I don't know about you, I was thinking about this, I was thinking, what would be my visceral reaction here if I've gone through what this dude has gone through and God, you know, supernaturally springs me from jail? I'd have probably been tempted to just run and, you know, that jailer can take care of himself kind of thing. And as believers, sometimes this is how we view people outside the family of God. They're They're darkness. We should avoid them. Paul says, don't hurt yourself. We're all still here. He loved the guy. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, well, Scott, you know, I, I just don't know enough. I need to know more before I, I, I do any of this. And the old expression is so too. They, they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. I was talking with someone between the services. And they were just saying to me, they weren't bragging. But they just said, when I first came to Christ, he said, I'd looked at like two chapters of scripture and I was just praying, God, would you use me? And God began to give me opportunities to share Jesus. I knew almost nothing, but I just told my story. And then a little later in life, they said to me, you know, I was in the lunchroom and someone came up to me and deeply concerned about what they're going on in their life. And they said, I've got this serious health problem. Would you pray for me? And, and this person just stood up, put their hand on this person's shoulder, and prayed for God's healing right there and then. When they opened their eyes, there was 120 eyes in the room, 60 other employees all looking at them. See, it takes courage 
to be a follower of Jesus. And the thing that was so cool about it is they said they didn't even really think about it. It was just a natural thing. This person is hurting. This person needs help. They've asked me to pray for them, and I'm going to do it. Didn't even give a thought to the fact that there were 60 other people in the room. And they simply loved this guy. And then they acted on the opportunities that God gave them. And the guy goes, what do I need to be saved? What do I need to do to be saved? If you keep reading the story. Because he'd been want, he heard what these guys done. He'd been part of the administration of the, you know, that society's justice, so-called justice in their life. He probably had overseen them, putting them in stocks and tearing their legs apart. And he's thinking, these guys are not swearing nonstop at me and telling me where to go. They're worshiping this God that I do not know. And they care about. Paul and Silas just said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. And so they lived out by example. They loved this guy and then they just used some basic words. And sometimes it's just like that. Sometimes it's just a very straightforward one-off. Sometimes it's over a long period of time, over a whole lifetime, where you have a relationship with someone, where you live out the Jesus journey in front of them. And then once in a while, when it's the time is right or whatever, you get opportunities to talk to them about what Christ has done. And you're in it for the long haul with them. It, it can look all kinds of different ways. But I believe it starts fundamentally with knowing who we are in Christ. Because when you know or I know who I am in Christ, I'm deeply grateful for the forgiveness that I have in Christ. I'm deeply grateful for the transformation and the touch of God in my life. And I'm, I just can't not talk, care about people and talk to them about it when I get the chance. Because when we know who we are, we will know what to do. And you know, there's been a boatload of times in my life I haven't handled that well. But what I have found is that when I just pray really simply and say, uh, I don't know what this is going to mean, God. And this, to be honest, it kind of scares me a little bit, but I'm available. I'm available to be salt. I'm available to be light. I'm available to be used in any way you see fit. And my experience is that he gives me opportunities. And they just come along. I don't have to really work at it. They just come along. And if I'm a, aware and available and listening he gives opportunities. Last time was eight days ago. A week ago yesterday, Saturday. And I'm on a plane. It's an A320, three and three with the center aisle. And I'm on the aisle and sitting beside me is this husband and this wife. And I'm tired. I have been working morning till night for several days in a row. And I've now been traveling all day. It's seven o'clock at night. Uh... I got another hour until we land in Calgary and then a two-hour drive or whatever down to Lethbridge, get home, you know, 10.30 or something like that, Saturday night. And I'm really tired. And to be honest with you, I didn't want to talk to anybody. I just wanted to pretend to read the book in front of me <laughs> or stare at the little screen 18 inches in front of me and just veg out. Didn't feel like talking to anybody. 
And about an hour before we landed, this guy turns and asks me a question sitting right there. And so I look into his eyes, and uh, I'm answering this question. It was just an innocuous question. But as I'm doing that, I'm saying, I'm praying. And I'm just saying, Lord, you know, I'm really tired. To be honest with you, I don't feel like talking to this guy at all. But I'm available. And if you want to use me somehow, I'm in. So we begin to talk, very intelligent, electrical engineer, lives in Washington, D.C., uh, manages big networks for the government of the United States. He uh, had emigrated from mainland China, he and his wife, about 30 years ago. So I said to him, you know, my two nieces were adopted from mainland China, blah, blah, blah. We talk a little bit. Um, he tells me that he's going to Banff. They've never been to Western Canada. They're going on a holiday. And I'm saying, oh, you're going to love it. It's awesome. Do this, do that. Be careful. I told him, be careful how you drive on the snow if there's ice and stuff like that. And so he's, we're talking. And then he begins to talk to me about the problems in the world and how there's just more and more problems. And he begins to talk about religion. I didn't even have to do it. He just starts talking about it. And so he and I are blah, 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 back and forth, just a little bit. And then I just sort of said to him, don't you think people are looking for hope? And he got real interested then. And he leaned a little closer to me. And I said, you know, I, I have the sense that most people are looking for something greater than themselves to give themselves to. You think that's true? He thought that was true. And... Uh, I was able to just share Jesus with him, very simply. He kept wanting to talk about religion, and I said, well, you know, the thing that's changed my life is just really different than all the religious stuff, or all the philosophical endeavors. Very different. They're all about what I do or don't do. This is all about what Jesus did for me. And even though this guy was a very intelligent, PhD, blah, 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 knew nothing, and I mean zero about, probably knew Jesus as a swear word, period. Knew nothing about God or Jesus or the Bible, anything. And I just said, this is at the heart of why Jesus came and went to the cross. And, and this, is, uh, this has given me peace. Even in a tough environment in the world, quite intrigued. And we were going to be landing in 10 minutes, and he said, how can I know more? And I pointed him to a healthy direction. So did he pray to receive Jesus right at that moment? No. And I don't know what God's going to do with that. That's in God's hands. And maybe I'll see him in heaven one day, and we'll celebrate that time on the plane. I don't know. That's in God's hands. But I do know this, that when we make ourselves available, God just seems to give us opportunities. You say you might say, well, things like that never happened to me. And that may be the case. But I'm just going to ask you, again, another very personal question. Have you made yourself available? And you go, well, I'm scared, Scott. Well, I'm scared too. <laughs> that, you know, he's, oh, he's just, no, I am. It scares me. But have you made yourself available? Aren't you glad? Someone made themselves available to you when you were outside the family of God. That someone prayed for you, that someone gave, that someone stepped out of their comfort zone for you. 
we are called to be salt and light because when you know who you are, you'll know what to do.